0: Hello, my name is Will Stockdale, Ministry Associate with Ministry to State here in Washington, D.C., and I want to welcome you to the first in a seven-part series through the book of Daniel. Over the next seven weeks, we are going to be looking at the entire book of Daniel, both at the historical narrative that occurs in chapters one through six, and then the prophetic visions that take place in chapters seven through twelve. We'll spend the first six weeks looking at these historical narratives. We'll look at one chapter a week. And then in the last week, we will look at chapter 7 to 12 as a whole. Uh, But hopefully, because there's so much there, we'll be able to bring in some of those prophetic visions into the first six chapters as those chapters are interlocked and connected with each other. When we first chose this book to study, the plan was to host it at We the Pizza down on Pennsylvania Avenue. But as events over the last several weeks have unfolded, And COVID-19 has turned into a pandemic and life as we know it has changed and has altered and we are all uh, adjusting to this new normal, however long it may last, we decided to take this online and to put it out as a podcast. And then we'll also be hosting a Zoom Bible study on Thursday evenings at 6.30. So as we get going, there are a a couple reasons why we chose to study this book the first is its relevance to those who are working in government daniel is about uh, political exile and his three friends from judah who were part of the uh, nobility in Judah, taken off to serve a foreign government, to serve a foreign power. And throughout their time, specifically Daniel in his time in the Babylonian government, he rose to power and he rose higher in the ranks as he was trusted more and more with the leaders in Babylon. He rose not just because of his own wisdom or insight. He rose because God is faithful to his people, whether or not we are faithful to them. But Daniel also gives us an example of how we can possibly live faithful in exile. Uh, this is a question that is raised over and over and over again. If God's people are in exile, if they are not at home in Israel, can they live faithfully as he has called them out to live? Second, though, is as, as I mentioned, you know, with COVID-19, something of which we're all aware has unfolded and grown there has been added relevance of this book as Daniel takes place in two different sections between historical narrative and prophetic visions. This prophetic vision kind of overlays and interlocks with the first six chapters and it overlays and interlocks in a way that interprets and gives meaning to the events that occurred in the historical narrative. There is a type of historical narrative that occurs as public domain that everyone has access to and everyone lives. And then there's historical narrative that God gives us meaning, uh, God gives us understanding into so we know what is the true purpose of what is going on. And so as we get going, I want to make a few preliminary observations about the book of Daniel to help us kind of understand what we're getting into uh, this fits well, not just because uh, this is an introductory lesson, but also because Daniel, chapter one, kind of serves as an introduction. It begins with Nebuchadnezzar taking off the nobility to Babylon and then ends with mentioning that Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So chapter one kind of brackets the entirety of Daniel's life, and then it's filled in the middle with a story about Daniel being faithful in the midst of exile. As was mentioned, there are two distinct styles. There's the historical narrative in chapters 1 through 6, and then the prophetic visions in chapters 7 through 12. They are interlocked and related to each other. There is history, and there is the meaning of history. There is the history that is a public domain that is accessible, and then there is history in its fullest sense, and that, that God is at work in the world to bring everything back to redemption, everything back into right standing with him. Um, There was a 20th century German theologian who talked about two types of history, history that was available to all, and then history and its meaning. In some ways, you get this idea worked out in Daniel, um, and that through God's revelation, we understand what he is doing and what he is up to in the world today. So that is the first, that there are two distinct sections. Uh, As there are two distinct sections, there are also two languages that are used in Daniel. There's Hebrew in chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, 4a, the first half of verse 4. And then through two four B through seven, twenty eight, it is in Aramaic. And then we pick up again and have eight one through twelve thirteen is in Hebrew. So we get an introduction in Hebrew. We get the narrative in Aramaic, and then we get the prophetic visions in Hebrew. What is going on here? Well, it's a reminder to the reader that what took place truly did take place in exile. But that exile was not a time where they were forgotten by God, but that God was faithful to them, and that God was always at work to set things right. And so, uh, as we have the language and the two sections, we also have a lot of typology. Typology is one of those kind of fancy words that means studying of types. So, types are representative of peoples and places. And we see this all over in scripture. We see the tree of life in Genesis, and then we see the tree of life in Revelation as well. And those, uh, anytime we see tree, we should think of what exactly do those, does that tree symbolize. And so with Daniel, Daniel represented a type of uh, rescuer for God's people. There are scholars who think that Daniel was intentionally connecting his story to to Joseph's story, we see countless examples of connection between the two. Joseph was sold off into slavery. Joseph rose to power. Joseph interpreted visions. And Joseph also prophesied his people leaving exile. All of those things happened to Daniel. And this typology is important, not just because it's some kind of nerdy seminary thing, but because Daniel placed himself firmly in the middle of redemptive history. He connects his story back to Genesis and drives it all the way forward to the return of the king. Uh, We see this in a couple ways. First, in in chapter one, we see that when Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, he took away the vessels from the house of God and brought them to the land of Shinar. Uh, Shinar should take us back to uh, the Tower of Babel, uh, which is where we get Babylon and uh, the Tower of Babel. Uh, Was built in opposition to God as kind of the symbol of the nations trying to make a name for themselves apart from God and apart from His rule and authority over the world. Um, And then we see Daniel reading Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Daniel 9. He understands that God's promises in the past are coming to uh, be fulfilled in the present to lead on to the future where God again will come and dwell with His people. And then lastly, Daniel was a very, very important book in the time of Jesus. It is referenced countless times. Uh, we see connections between Daniel's life and Jesus' life. We see Jesus as the fulfillment of, of the perfect type of rescuer, of Messiah, as he is the savior of the world. And then it is referred to countless times in John's apocalypse. In uh, Revelation, we see a ton of similarities between Daniel and the way that John uh, wrote his revelation. We'll get into that more when we look at the prophecies, but those are just some preliminary things as we begin looking. So what I want to do now is um, start looking at Daniel 1, uh, and then we'll take this in chunks. So we're going to go through Daniel 1, 1 through 2. We're told that the exile under which Daniel went took place in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. There are different dates given by different scholars as to when exactly this was, it generally ranges between 605 BC and 600 BC. This exile took place also after Babylon had defeated Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish. And this is important because we realize that there is a very complicated geopolitical landscape that is existing in this time. This is not just an isolated incident, but there are allies, there are allegiances, there are different countries, different nations that were seeking to ally themselves with power and seek to put them in a self uh, where they would be an advantage and Israel was caught in that and Judah was defeated and uh, for a number of reasons, uh, mostly uh, because of their' sin and their kind of playing of real politic that led them to be taken off into exile. We see in 1 two we see this phrase and this is repeated this phrase is repeated three times uh, throughout the first chapter. And it was this, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, Uh, the Lord gave, the Lord gave. While God's people are under siege, as God's people are being attacked by a foreign power, he does not want them to forget that he is the one who is in charge. That Nebuchadnezzar only does what he does, that Cyrus only does what he does because God allows it to happen. It's God's world and Nebuchadnezzar is just living in it. That's kind of the way to think about it. And so God is still in charge. God is still the one who is orchestrating events and God is bringing about something greater than anything we could ask or imagine. And then in Daniel 1 verses 3 through 4, we're introduced to a man named Ashpenaz. He is the chief eunuch. He can be described as something of uh, a confidant for the king. He is looked upon and and entrusted by Nebuchadnezzar to start and fulfill a re-education program. These nobility were taken off into Babylon. We could say that perhaps they were like an aristocracy and that they were indoctrinated and educated in Babylonian literature in hopes that they would become, well, would lose their Jewish identity, lose their identity as God's people and become thoroughly Babylonian. There's a scholar named Ian, and he says by way of application that Wherever they are educated, our children need to know and understand the contemporary language and literature of the Babylonians and be armed with biblical discernment into its follies and flaws. Everywhere we go in this world, we are being educated in one way or another. There are countless narratives that we are being faced with, that we are, being, that we are hearing and listening to. And what is most important is that we listen primarily and firstly to God's story that he is telling and then filter these other narratives through that. And then we get another quote here that the fundamental goal of the whole procedure, though, was in one way or another to obliterate all memory of Israel and Israel's God from the lips and the minds of these young men and to instill into them a sense of the total dependence on Nebuchadnezzar for all good things in life. Whereas originally they would be relying on God for good things, they are instead to rely on Nebuchadnezzar for giving them good things. And then in Daniel 1, 5 through 7, these young men are given new names. And this is a really important point. Their original names all remind us that they're people of Yahweh. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are each names that allude to and reference the God of Israel. And the new names that are given, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are each names that reference a different God in the babylonian pantheon so in the babylonian all the deities that were there these names each reference a different babylonian deity and this is not accidental this is a, this is an intentional effort at fragmentation whereas prior to they were united as one people to one god in babylon they are dispersed and fragmented to different people To different gods. And I think this is something that is incredibly relevant to us today. We are so often tempted to be fragmented and to have our identity rooted in any number of things, to what we do, where we went to school, who our family is, what our hobbies are. And those those things are not always and inherently bad themselves, but when they become how we identify and call ourselves, they fragment us and prevent us from fully being the people of God as he has called us. And then we get to Daniel 1:8. In Daniel 1:8, we see that he chose not to eat the food that was given him, uh, but he chose water and vegetables. And the question is, why did Daniel choose to drink water and eat vegetables and not meat? Well, some people have thought that perhaps that's because meat was sacrificed to the idols and he didn't want to wouldn't want to uh, eat that. However, the vegetables would have also been offered up to the idols. So that doesn't totally hold. There's one suggestion that perhaps Daniel choosing the vegetables and the water, vegetables and water are things that grow naturally. They come from the earth. And so it was Daniel's one way of remembering that all things that he has are gifts from God. This again would tie back into combating the idea that Nebuchadnezzar is the giver of good gifts instead of Daniel's God. Um, We're not exactly sure, but we do know that it was a way for him to resist and differentiate and separate himself from the other individuals who were being reeducated. It was a way for him to point out softly, uh, but firmly who he was following and uh, what part of the people he actually was. And so in in Daniel 9 through 16, we're going to look at Daniel 1, 9 through 16. And again, we see this for the second time, this phrase, God gave. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. This is told us after he chose not to eat the food of the or drink the wine of Babylon. And, you know, oftentimes when the story of Daniel is told, there's a kind of dare to be a Daniel um, theme that runs through it. And, you know, when, when you start studying Daniel and start looking at it, that doesn't really hold too well. We're not seeing that Daniel was somehow great because he was incredibly smart, although he was incredibly wise, as we'll see that he was or handsome, although he was that. But but all these things occur because God gave him favor. God is the one who gives good gifts. Again, to tie the, uh, these kind of bad themes, you're probably aware of the Daniel diet out there. The One of the funny things when you think about that is that Daniel didn't lose weight. He was fatter at the end of this. So at the end of the 10 days, it says that he was fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So Go for the Daniel diet, but if you lose weight, maybe we've missed the point a little bit. So not only was Daniel faithful and his friends were faithful to God, but they also won, uh, won over Ashpenaz. They also won him over by their gentleness and humility and wisdom. So in the third and final section of Daniel one seventeen through 21, we read in Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Again, this is another theme of God gives. God is the one who gives. And this idea of God giving versus us taking runs throughout scripture. It is always a bad idea for us to to take, for man to take in scripture. In the Garden of Eden, we see that Adam and Eve took the fruit. We see that uh, with David and Bathsheba, that David took Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. And in contrast to that, we see in Philippians 2, we see that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus did not take the temptations that were offered him by Satan in his 40 days in the wilderness, but instead received the calling that God had given him. So again, this is a type, this is a a theme, a motif that runs throughout scripture that we see in Daniel, that Daniel, again, connects himself from Eden all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. We see that in this, at the end of chapter one, we see that Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. By there, it's Babylon. And that God used these four men and God's faithful people to push forward his plan of redemption. The plan that was finally fulfilled in Jesus who, by his wisdom and understanding, awed those who listened, who taught as one who had authority and not like the other scribes, who left his father's side, went through exile, and returned to the right hand of the father. We can catch the glimpses here that Jesus is the perfect Daniel, that Jesus is the one who rescues his people. Jesus is the one who brings us out of sin and death, out of the exile of those things, and brings us back into life and right standing with the father so as we wrap up and conclude just a couple points of application here god is the one who is causing daniel to receive favor god is the one who gives all good gifts god is the one who kept them healthy and safe and as one scholar points out this book over and over again asks the questions how can we be faithful in a foreign place at a foreign time is it possible if so How? The psalmist asks the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? And the answer of that is by living according to your word. Daniel does not offer some kind of escapist eschatology, some idea of escape where we can run away from the world, but rather we see Daniel who dives into the world, who trusts that God is acting in the world and that he has called his people to faithfulness. And so as we're in this confusing time of COVID-19, we can trust and rely on the fact that God is in charge, that God is not surprised by any of this, that um, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him, that God cares deeply for his creation and he cares how his people respond to this time. So I hope that we will use these next days well, that we will spend time in prayer and in scripture and seek out how we best can love our neighbor as ourselves and serve our Father who is in heaven.